0: everybody doing today I
1: have a swell show for you I have a superb show for you but before I get started I'd like to wish a very happy birthday to the one and only Lilith Penn the heartbeat of secular talk secular talks number one fan number one member number one helper Lilith Penn is awesome um she's had a rough year in terms of what happened with her family and her father um But she also got married, and I think the marriage thing is wonderful because he seems like an awesome guy. So, uh, very happy birthday to Lilith Penn. Uh, Secular talk wouldn't be the same without you. So I just wanted to start the show by sending a little love your way. Um, But there's a lot to talk about today. Donald Trump actually signed the coronavirus relief bill. Um, I'm going to lead with that in just a second. Um, we also have Rand Paul went on Fox News to slam the stimulus bill and he makes some horrendous arguments that we'll discuss. CNN did some decent journalism um, where they spoke to a victim of the Blackwater massacre. You don't want to miss that story. That really is something else. And then uh, later on in the show, Joe Biden gave us another epic Joe Biden moment where he basically says, hey, Republicans, I love you. And hey, progressives, I hate you. So um, it's going to be a long four years if I don't say so myself. (laughs) It's going to be a long four years. So let me go ahead and pull up the update. Um, I'm trying to pull up an article from the Hill real quick before we get started. By the way, if you hear a bunch of noise in the background today, I don't know why, but in the fucking dead middle of winter, They're doing some sort of like tree removal nearby, very strange, and they started at like eight o'clock in the morning today. In between Christmas and New Year's, in the dead of winter, tree removal at 8 a.m., so I feel like there's a, I can't go a day without some weirdness happening, and by the way, I don't know if I've teased this yet, oh, I did tease this on air, I'm sorry, Um We got a surprise coming, a surprise that uh, I cannot give out any of the details yet, but I've been teasing it on Twitter a little bit. Um, It's it's exciting. Can't tell you about it, but it's exciting, but you'll know soon. In fact, I might even be able to give you – I think I can. I think I could give you the date. January 1st, 2021. January 1st, 2021. Prepare yourselves. Pucker your buttholes it's going downski. ski <laughs> All right, uh, I'm sorry, I can't even find the article, so I'm just going to wing it on uh, the update. Here we go, after I button my fucking thing. I have the hands of an orangutan, because I don't even know how to button a fucking button on my wrist. In theory, this should be very easy, but this is not working out. Okay, anyway, here we go. So I have an update for everybody on uh, the stimulus bill, the stimulus negotiations. Donald Trump came out recently and threatened a veto. He basically said he would veto it. He said, listen, I don't like the pork that's in this bill. I don't like how we're sending money to Cambodia and all these other places. I want to get rid of the pork in the bill, and I also want to increase the payments from $600 to $2,000 per American, $4,000 per couple. Um, So basically make these revisions and get it back to my desk. That's what happened. That's what Trump said. In fact, he did like a speech about it and tweeted the speech. So fast forward three days, four days, and Nancy Pelosi put up an amendment. I don't even know if technically the right word is an amendment because she tried to do it through unanimous consent, making that $600 payment $2,000. And the way it works with unanimous consent is you need everybody to be down with it. And so, of course, you had a bunch of Republicans who were like, no, I don't want people to get $2,000. I object. And the fact that they object means the whole thing was killed. So what was going to happen is today, Monday, as I talk to you guys right now, there was going to be an actual bill proposed on the House floor, which would make that $600, $2,000. Now, the unanimous consent thing, I mean, it could have been a red herring Nancy Pelosi probably knew it wasn't going to pass, so she wanted to do it that way, so she could say, see, the Republicans are the problem. And she's not wrong. The Republicans are the problem. The House Republicans definitely are the problem. If they didn't object, then we would have gotten $2,000. Um, but she always could have proposed it in a new bill, and then you don't need unanimous consent, and then it's going to pass. And so that's what was going to happen today. Is it still going to happen? I don't know. I hope it does. But after the 2000 attempt through unanimous consent failed in the House, Trump sat on it, sat on it, sat on it, and then unemployment insurance expired. And then after that, he acted and said, oh, yeah, no, totally, I'm going to sign this bill. This bill is wonderful. This bill is awesome. So he went from saying, giving a speech saying, I'm going to veto this thing and you need to make these changes, to saying, oh, did I say I'm going to veto these things and you need to make these changes? How about no? How about um, I'm going to sign it exactly as it is? And, of course, he tried to save face by arguing like, well, you know, I've gotten word from the Senate and I've gotten word from the House that they're going to take up some of the things that I talked about. So uh, one of the things that they're going to take up is the $2,000 payments. I'm very much looking forward to that. Now that's very unlikely to pass. Like, it might get through the House because the House is overwhelmingly Democratic, but um, it ain't going to get through the Senate. And Mitch McConnell, I don't even know if Mitch McConnell will let it up for a vote. I highly doubt he'll let it up for a vote, but if he does let it up for a vote, I don't think he's going to go anywhere. Um, So... Basically, Trump was bluffing the entire time, and his bluff was called when they didn't act immediately, and they didn't get something through immediately that would have been 2000, and um, now we're right back at square one. So some people are just happy that this relief bill is getting signed because we needed some relief, of course. On the one hand, I totally agree with that. If we didn't get relief to people ASAP, I mean, we're up shit's creek without a paddle, no doubt about it. Um, But on the other hand, yeah, if you waited one more day, you might have been able to get that $2,000 payment to your desk. It definitely would have gone through the House. Um, Again, the Senate's another question, so maybe it's 50-50 as to whether or not anything would have happened there. If the original bill wasn't signed and the $2,000 payments got to the Senate, and then if Trump declared all-out war on Mitch McConnell, you never know what could have happened. But ultimately, Trump's cuck nature won out, just like I was telling you from the beginning. He could have argued from day one for the $2,000 payments. Instead, he sat on the sidelines and let Mnuchin take the lead and Mitch McConnell take the lead in negotiations with Democrats. And at the very last minute, he interjects himself and says, now I want $2,000. Well, where were you four weeks ago, five weeks ago? Where were you on that? You were in order to be found. So ultimately, he cupped out because he's like, oh, no, I totally signed this bill. And the other thing that's hilarious, I love this fact. So Trump goes through the bill and does a line-by-line, not the whole thing, the whole thing is like 5,000 pages or something ridiculous, so I doubt he was able to go through the whole thing, but he did what is effectively a line-item veto, which is like when the president can go through a bill and take out individual provisions that he doesn't like. Now, the only thing about that is we don't have a line-item veto in our government. So Trump doesn't have that capacity. He doesn't have that capability. He's not allowed to do that. It's not legal for him to do that. So he takes a red pen and does the line item veto, and then he says, I sent this back to the House, and I'm showing them which things I'm against. And the House and and the Senate are already like, we're not going to change this. We're not going to take out these provisions. They have the ability to take out those provisions, but they've already said, we're not going to take those out. So basically Trump just wasted time playing with a red marker to say, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. And then he still signed the bill, and it's going to become law. He really did cuck out. Like, if you were going to make this stand, at least get your $2,000 payments. And he didn't. He didn't get them. And, again, since he waited, now there, people are going to miss a week of unemployment of, at $600. So that's really going to hurt people. If he was going to sign it, you should have just signed it from second one so that you don't miss a week of that $600 payment. So in an attempt to increase the payment to 2,000, he actually reduced it by 600. Oh, Jesus Christ. He's such a cuck, man, he really is. He's all bark and no bite. And, but by the way, the good news from that is, any, any thought of like the diet coup that might happen, this is, this is just, forget evidence, this is proof that there's no way he could plan or follow through with a coup, like organize, well enough to do a coup. He couldn't even sufficiently find a way to force the provisions he wants into the relief bill. He folded after like a few days. So this, there's no way that he's organized enough to orchestrate some sort of military coup. He's tripping over his own dick, falling all over the place. (laughs) So it's, I mean, it really is just sad. Um, But man, I really hope that those $2,000 payments, it will likely pass the House, they'll probably still vote on it, it'll likely pass the House, but then it gets to the Senate and it probably dies in the Senate. Trump would have needed to actually go to war with McConnell, and he didn't. Imagine cucking yourself to Mitch McConnell, turtle boy, the guy who's never said an interesting thing in his life, and he looks like the Grim Reaper, and he's nothing but like a shell of a human being doing the bidding of corporations. You're going to... You're going to lose in a standoff with that weirdo? Homeboy's got a 21% approval rating. Donald Trump has like a 40% approval rating. It basically doubles his approval rating, and you couldn't take on a battle with Mitch McConnell and win? Cuck of all cucks. So anyway, but the good news is at least people are getting some relief. I don't think this bill is nearly as bad as the CARES Act was. The CARES Act, um, it was very corporate heavy on the bailouts, and there weren't enough provisions that really mandated what they do with those funds. So what you saw is, like Boeing, for example, took billions of dollars and then fired tens of thousands of people anyway. Um, This isn't as big of a corporate bailout. There are more provisions that are necessary and for the people. So uh, not as bad as the CARES Act at all, but, you know, I wish it was that $2,000 number. And he's all barking, no bite. He he huffed and he puffed and he was going to blow the house down, and instead he face-planted and made himself look like a fool and then tried to save face. So, there you have it, Donald Trump doing Donald Trump things. I mean, I guess this, you could have said this was somewhat expected, but if you're going to make the threat, follow through on it. It's just like where he's always tweeting, we're going to get out of Iraq, we're going to get out of Afghanistan, and like a week later we hear some general behind the scenes talk him out of it. It's like, okay, then why are you, then don't even go on Twitter and do your whole, like, you know, fake anti-war tap dance. Just own it from the beginning. You're so weak. You're the commander-in-chief. You absolutely can, at least when it comes to foreign policy, You can act unilaterally. You can decide what we're going to do and when we're going to do it. But he does, and then he backs off of it. It's just, ultimately, listen, keep it real. I don't know how many times I can say this. The guy's a cuck. He's a massive cuck, and that's crystal clear. Okay.
2: All right, now, we're going to move on to one of the
1: biggest ghouls. This guy is, is an economic ghoul, if I don't say so myself. Here we go. Economic advisor to basically every corporate Democrat, Larry Summers, went on Bloomberg to talk about the COVID relief bill, and he made some news. Here's what he said.
0: I don't think the $2,000 checks uh, make much sense. The real issue is going to be sustaining this expansion. If you think about it, the 908 stimulus bill probably would pay out 200 to $250 billion a month for the next three months. Uh,
3: level of compensation is running about 30 billion dollars a month below
0: what we would have expected it would gdp is running about 70 billion dollars a month below what we would have expected it would so in a way that's quite unprecedented we have stimulus already much more than filling out the hole and given that lots of the hole is from the fact not that people don't want to spend but that they can't spend because they can't take a flight or they can't go to a restaurant, I don't necessarily think that the priorities should be on promoting consumer spending beyond where we are now. So I'm not even sure that I'm so enthusiastic about the $600 checks, and I think taking them to $2,000 would actually be a pretty serious mistake that would risk a temporary overheat. I would like to see more assistance to state and local governments. I would like to see more money put into testing, uh, more money put into accelerating vaccines. But, gosh, David, I think it would be a real mistake to be going to
4: uh, $2,000. And I have to say that when you see the two extremes agreeing You can almost be certain that something crazy
0: is in the air. And so when I see a coalition of Josh Hawley, Bernie Sanders, and Donald Trump getting behind an idea, I think that's time to run for cover.
2: There it is.
1: There's that argument again. Attack the messenger. I don't like Donald Trump and I don't like Bernie Sanders, so if they agree on something, it must be wrong.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, this guy is like a caricature of an out-of-touch elitist. Doesn't matter if Genghis Khan came up with the idea. If it's a good idea, it's a good idea. You know, Trump and Bernie both talk about how we should end wars. Does so that mean we should stay in these wars forever? Don't answer that, Larry Summers, because you'll probably say yes. But I mean, these people are ridiculous. In, in that, he's he's giving you a peek inside that Washington D.C. conventional wisdom bubble, where that really is one of the things they think. Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, Josh Hawley. Hmm. They're not down the line establishment thinkers, therefore they must be wrong. I mean, he argues, no, I don't. Two thousand dollars doesn't make sense. And also, I'm not even sure I'm on board with the 600. That's what he said. Um, Larry, people have to pay their bills. I don't know if you're aware of this, but we're effectively in a new depression. Have you seen the numbers? 60% of small businesses that closed are now closed permanently. They're now gone. More than half of small businesses. Do you realize how insane that is? Do you realize that, what's the number I read, 28 million people? could become homeless, 28 million, 28 million. It's only like, and I don't mean to downplay this or diminish this because it's a lot, but there's like 500,000 now. 28 million we're talking about. 30% of people, and this is going back three, four months, but 30% of people couldn't pay their rent or couldn't pay their mortgage. People are absolutely struggling in a way that they haven't maybe ever. You know, we have these giant swings now in the job market, too, the number of people who are unemployed losing their jobs, or if they're working, it's a gig economy job, and they're taking giant pay cuts. I mean, we're in a terrible situation, and this guy, because he's comfortable, is like, I don't know, $2,000 payments, I don't know about that. $600 payments, I don't even know about that. And just to show you the kind of guy that Larry Summers is, this is how wrong he's been throughout his entire career. So he was a, a top economic advisor to President Obama, and, um, and actually, every corporate Democrat, he was for Bill Clinton as well. So one of the things that he was a top advocate of is repealing Glass-Steagall under Bill Clinton. And for those of you who don't know, that's one of the things that led to the subprime mortgage crisis in the Great Recession. Glass-Steagall was a very important um, piece of regulation which set up a wall of separation between commercial banking and investment banking. So it used to be that when you go deposit your money in the bank, they can't use that for very risky casino capitalist bets. He got rid of that wall of separation, and he made it so that yeah you could go put your money in, in the local bank and then they could do crazy derivative bets and you know blow it all and then eventually need the government to step out and step in and bail them out. so I mean this guy is a total total neoliberal deregulator. His ideology has been you know proven wrong time and time again in the sense that uh, a lot of the things he advocates cause material harm. So big fighter for repealing Glass-Steagall. He also was advising Obama during the Great Recession when there were 5 million homes that were seized by the big banks. So he was an advocate of, hey, let's do the bailout. To the extent we do bailouts, let's do them from the top down. So let's bail out Wall Street, let's bail out corporations. Instead of bailing out homeowners, if you're going to do a bailout, you should have done bottom-up and bail out the ho- homeowners. He didn't do that, so 5 million people were kicked out of their homes. He also argued for dumping toxic waste in poor countries. Shows you how much he thinks of the developing countries and and how he thinks there's a rigid hierarchy of who deserves good things and who doesn't. He reduced the size of the Obama stimulus bill to under a trillion dollars when they were debating the size of the stimulus. He came in and said, we're not gonna do over a trillion dollars. And he also convinced Obama to push for tax cuts instead of infrastructure spending. This is Larry Summers. And according to the Wall Street Journal, um, he called Senator Chris Dodd and he asked him to remove caps on executive pay at firms that were receiving stimulus money, including Citigroup. And by the way, he's getting paid by these financial institutions all the time. Like he took quite a bit of money from these big financial institutions. And then when you look at that, he's saying, let's do bailouts with no strings attached and don't limit executive pay. So this guy is, I mean, he, he's a caricature of the out of touch elitist who doesn't care about working people, and he would casually go out there. Like, he doesn't even think he's saying anything controversial when he's like, no, I don't want $2,000 payments, no, I don't want $600 payments, or he's agnostic on the $600 payments or however he he phrased it. But he doesn't even think he's saying anything controversial because he's been so deep in that conventional wisdom bubble, that establishment bubble, that elitist bubble, that he thinks, like, what do you mean? Me and everybody around me, we all agree on that. So uh, how could I possibly be wrong? You're wrong because your ideology is not an ideology which creates peace and prosperity for the majority of the American people. I mean, again, out-of-touch elitist is the best way to describe this guy, and um, it's a joke. It's a joke. And now you see how we have a situation where corporate Democrats can be so bad that it's easy for a fake populist like Trump to exploit that rift, because the American people know guys like Larry Summers aren't looking out for you. To be fair, the American people don't even really know who Larry Summers is. Most don't. Um, But with these kinds of decisions being made, it causes material harm. And then when it causes material harm, you open up the door for a fake populist like Trump to come in, and, you know, Trump can pretend like he's for the working man and woman, and then he gets support. And again, you have guys like Larry Summers, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama to thank for the rise of Trump and Trumpism. That's not to say that there wasn't also like a racial element to it and there wasn't a culture war element to it. Of course there was, for sure. But there was also an economic element to it. And you open the door for somebody on the right to be a fake populist and make people think, oh, maybe that guy's for me, because I know that the elitist corporate Democrats aren't for me. So there you have it. There you have it. This guy is giving advice when he's been wrong about virtually every major decision he's ever been involved with. discussed how President Trump um, caved and signed the COVID relief bill. Now, I want to go ahead and show you what they were saying on CNN before Trump signed this bill, because I think this is a really important story in terms of, you know, the power and the scope of the media and how they can shape the discourse in this country. So look at where they put the bulk of the blame, and then we'll come back and I'll explain to you why I think they're missing the mark here.
0: Uh, Let's get an update on the fate of the COVID-19 relief bill, the threat of a government shutdown, and the hand-wringing up on Capitol Hill. Our congressional correspondent Phil Mattingly is tracking all of this for us. Uh, Phil, the president's demand to increase stimulus checks is putting members of his own party in a real bind. Uh, What's the latest? Yeah, no question about it. Well, Wolf, the, the bill itself is physically on its way to the president. It is being flown as we speak to Florida for the president to decide what he wants to do. What we don't know is what he will do. Now, today, House Democrats attempted by unanimous consent, as you noted, Wolf, to try and expand those direct payments to $2,000 as the president requested. Republicans blocked it. Republicans are also expected to mostly vote against a similar bill in an up-or-down fashion on Monday. Senate Republicans making clear there aren't the votes in the Senate to ex- span, checks to that level, all of this wolf underscoring this reality at this moment. There is no alternative. There is no secret plan B. There is the president needs to sign this bill, or there's no other option. That's basically what I'm being told by Democrats and Republicans, everybody waiting to see him. Wolf, a couple things to keep in mind here. One, this isn't just a COVID relief package. This is also funding for the government through the fiscal year. So there will be a government shutdown on Monday if the president does not sign the bill. And, obviously, the stakes. Jeremy hit at them, the 12 to 13 million people that would lose unemployment benefits at de- on December 26. You have increased food aid. You have the extension of the eviction moratorium. All of the different pieces of this puzzle here, trying to provide a safety for Americans hurting right now from the coronavirus pandemic and the economic aftershocks from that. Right now, though, all in the hands of the president with nobody really sure what he's going to do. Well, yeah, millions and millions of Americans are going to suffer a wave of evictions all across the country. Does President Trump understand the real implications, the disaster of derailing this deal?
5: I, I think this president does understand, but what I think we can deduce from his actions over. The past few weeks and, and really quite frankly since the election is that this president Does not care about lighting everything on fire on his way out with just, you know, 27 days until Inauguration Day. This obviously is not a game, as Phil and Jeremy both noted. Millions of Americans are on the precipice of a benefit and an eviction cliff. Uh, There's food assistance on the line here, an eviction moratorium, lots of really consequential things. But this doesn't stop the president from waiting until the 11th hour and playing games, quite frankly.
0: So,
1: listen. Is there a lot of blame to go around, and is there a lot of blame for Trump? Absolutely. I mean, I've said it a million times, but if you're going to ask for that $2,000 payment instead of $600, you should have interjected yourself early on in the negotiations and been firm and said, we're not backing off of this. Um, He could have done that, and he didn't do that. Instead, he let Mitch McConnell take the lead, Steve Mnuchin to a lesser extent, Um, and then he got all these bills like the mansion. McConnell bill or Mansion Romney bill, where they negotiated, and they had stimulus bills with no stimulus checks. There were like multiple versions proposed of a stimulus bill with no stimulus checks. And everybody acted like, maybe this is going to be the one that gets passed. And then eventually, we only got even $600 payments, because Josh Hawley and Bernie Sanders were like, "No, we want $1,200 payments." And so they were met halfway and they settled on $600. So for Trump to come in at the last minute after everything's negotiated and say, $2,000 dollars and get rid of the pork. Um, I agree with $2,000 in getting rid of the pork, by the way, but you should have you said something earlier on. You should have been involved earlier on, and he wasn't. So you could blame him for the timing. And there is an element of truth to the idea that he'll blow everything up since he got shafted and he's, he lost the election, and so on the way out, he'll put his middle finger up to everybody and, and really cause trouble. There's no doubt about that. But here's what I don't like about this clip. Why is it that the House Republicans always get away with no blame? The House Republicans are worse than Trump in this instance, guys, and it's not even close. So when, when Trump gave a speech and said $2,000 payments and get rid of the pork, Nancy Pelosi responded, bet, $2,000 payments, we're on it. We're going to put it through the House right now. And she tried to do it through unanimous consent. And then a number of Republicans were like, no, I object. So why is the bulk of the conversation not, and why isn't the bulk of the blame, I should say, not at the feet of House Republicans? If House Republicans said, you know what, yeah, $2,000 payments, and if Donald Trump stood firm and said, Mitch McConnell, you're going to do these $2,000 payments, and if you don't, I'm going to burn the whole place down, we could have gotten $2,000 payments. If, if the House Republicans didn't object and then Trump put pressure on McConnell, we could have gotten $2,000 payments. Have every Democrat vote for it, they would have. In the House, they would have. And then in the Senate, they would have. And they had Josh Hawley Okay, you could have got the $2,000 payments. You could have got the $2,000 payments. But instead of blaming House Republicans for blocking the $2,000 payments, they don't even really discuss the House Republicans. And they go right to, oh, my God, does Trump understand the harm that's being caused here? Oh, my God, this is all Trump's fault. Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Again, there's plenty of blame for Trump. But in a rare instance where he actually comes up with a policy idea that's more beneficial to the American people... You think you should probably point that out, number one, and number two, blame the people who are blocking that. We could have gotten the $2,000 payments, and that bill could have already been signed if it wasn't for the congressional Republicans. But somehow the congressional Republicans get away with this. And by the way, don't, don't get me started. I know that Nancy Pelosi didn't have to do it through unanimous consent. She could have just put a clean bill on the floor, and they got it through the House that way for the $2,000 payments. She should have done that first. She didn't do that first. But word is she's going to do that today. So will she still do that now that Trump signed that $600, um, you know, stimulus check relief bill? He ended up signing the original stimulus bill. Will Pelosi do that? I hope she does. But now I think there's a much lower chance of that getting through because what will happen is definitely House Republicans, but definitely McConnell will be like, they're already getting $600, and that's enough for me, dog, so I'm not even going to allow this thing up for a vote. And it probably doesn't even matter how much you pressure him in that scenario, where it could have mattered how much you pressured him if you got nothing through yet. Uh, So... You know, listen, again, a lot of blame to go around for Trump, but the real blame is on the feet of the House Republicans who objectively are worse than Trump, and somehow they get away with it. And this speaks to a larger problem with mainstream media. This is what mainstream media does. They love the establishment Democrats and the establishment Republicans. And then they hate Trump so much that he ends up getting all of the blame in any dispute with either corporate Democrats or corporate Republicans. Now, by the way, I'm not saying Trump is anti-corporate, because he ultimately he is deeply pro-establishment. He just pretends to be anti-establishment. But every now and then, when he trips over a policy that's a good policy, there is no reflecting and there is no objective media calling balls and strikes. The media immediately pounces and says, Trump bad, Trump bad, Trump bad, no matter what the details, no matter what the specifics. And for the love of God, would you please stop pushing this narrative of, like, Trump is the aberration, Trump is the only bad one, and then the corporate Democrats are awesome, and now you even have the idea of the the establishment Republicans being the good Republicans. And that might have a lot to do with what happened in this election, too, by the way. That, okay, so Biden beat Trump, but Republicans did really well down ballot. Maybe one of the reasons for that is that the media and the Democrats didn't tie the other Republicans to Trump and gave the other Republicans a pass. It's only Trump who gets the nonstop hatred of the media. It's not the House Republicans. And the House Republicans deserve it, and the corporate Democrats deserve it. So anyway, it's really annoying that somehow the House Republicans are getting off with none of the blame here. When they're the biggest problem, they're definitely worse than Trump because they're not for that $2,000 payment. Trump, even though he came in too late, even though there's a million problems with how he did it, he's correct on the $2,000 payments, and that really wasn't expounded upon. And somehow the House Republicans get a free pass when they're the biggest ghouls in this whole process. The fucking sound of the trees being cut is annoying the shit out of me. Why does it always have to be during the show? I don't understand. Okay, let's continue. Rand Paul went on Fox News to slam the stimulus bill. Let's see what he had to say.
0: Our next guest, lighting up the Senate floor, just before lawmakers voted on the $900 billion stimulus bill. Senator Rand Paul blasted his fellow Republicans as no better than socialists in his now viral speech. Watch.
2: This bill is free money for everyone. Maybe these new free money Republicans should join the... Everybody gets a guaranteed income caucus to so called conservatives who are quick to identify the socialism of Democrats. If you vote for this spending monstrosity, you are no better. Now, with more is
1: the Republican Senator from Kentucky, Senator Rand Paul. Senator, Merry Christmas. Thank you so much for being here Good with morning. us. A lot of people, absolutely. Good morning. A lot of people loved what you had to say on the Senate floor. React to the recent developments, because it's been exposed how much pork is in this. When you tie an omnibus to an emergency bill like COVID-19, everyone throws their prerogatives of Washington into the bill.
0: Is there a way in which if some of that was stripped out, you could support one-time additional payments to individuals beyond 600, or is it both that you object to, sir?
2: You know, it would be great if there were actually that alternative. If they said, oh, we'll quit spending money on uh, selfies to see if selfies make you happy, and we'll quit spending money on the mating call of Panamanian frogs. But guess what? They never do that. They always add it. No one ever takes away any spending. That's my big gripe. It is, of course, Festivus, so I can tell you why I'm unhappy with all these jokers. (laughs) The thing is, is they never take away wasteful spending. They only add more to it. And the bottom line is the only way we recover is economy, and we've got to open the economy up. Unemployment is actually lower than it was during most of President Obama's term. So we really can recover, but we got to get these governors out of the way of our restaurants and our bars and our uh, venues. we got to get the economy opened up. It's the only way we survive this. And most working Americans don't need to check right now. It's a really foolish, egg-headed, left-wing socialist idea to pass out free money to people. So uh, I part ways from the president on giving people free money. We should help those who are unemployed by extending unemployment, but we shouldn't add to unemployment. There are things we can do. Look, in 2008, President Obama extended unemployment. They didn't juice it up by giving people more money not to work than they were. So we've got a lot of terrible ideas that are much worse than what we criticized President Obama. President Obama is now conservative when it comes to stimulus because his unemployment didn't oh boost it up, he just extended it. We didn't give cash payments back then, but the, the cash payments is a ridiculous, terrible, foolish, no-good idea, because you're just printing out money to give to people.
1: There's a lot to say about this. See, Rand's problem, and honestly this is a deeply unserious position and silly position, But his problem is that he conflates all kinds of government spending. See, to Rand, big government is bad, full stop. And so if you talk about building a bridge in Ohio versus blowing up a bridge in Kandahar, to him, hey, it's the same. It costs money. Government spending is not a good thing. So I'm not in favor of either one of those things. And this is what people who are libertarian or libertarian-leaning, this is part and parcel of their ideology. They think big government is bad, full stop. Um, And so when you come up with a solution that involves the government, they're against it in principle. And I respect it a lot more if they admit that it's it's an argument from principle. So in other words, it's not about, you know, empirical evidence or reality or what works or doesn't work. It's about, no, I just believe this as a matter of principle. If you admit that, okay, then I disagree with you, but we got no beef because at least you're honest about it. But what Rand tries to do is also pretend like, you know, the evidence, matches his ideology and his worldview as if you know government spending is like objectively bad. He says, you know, he rails against, quote, free money for everyone. And understand, guys, there are some libertarians, probably in the minority here, to be fair, but like Milton Friedman was interestingly for a version of universal basic income. Now, in the libertarian conception, they want to replace the social safety net replace the welfare state and only do the UBI. So that's why it's something that some of them support, because at least you're reducing the size of the bureaucracy. Um, But what I would say to Rand is, why don't you just look at this like it's a tax cut? If somebody net pays more than $600 in taxes and then the government cuts them a $600 check, why are you so stuck on the fact that we're calling it a subsidy or we're calling it a stimulus check when you could just as easily say, hey, view it like a tax cut. And it's so funny because if if that argument were to click with him, he would immediately flip on it. He'd be like, oh, yeah, I love tax cuts. Tax cuts are good by definition, so now I'm for it. But if you call it a stimulus check or if you call it a subsidy, and he's like, oh, no, that's big government. Big government spending is bad, so I'm I'm against it now. Again, it's really, really silly. And by the way, I never want to hear a single word about – and this is one of the talking points he always goes back to. He didn't do it in this clip, but he always does it where he talks about um, adding to the debt and the deficit. We can't afford this.
2: Our children and
1: our children's children can't afford this. Rand voted for the 2017 Republican tax cut bill. 83% of the benefits of that bill went to the top 1%, and it added nearly $2 trillion to the deficit. So he's fine with deficit spending when it's for tax cuts for the wealthy. Okay, He's just not for it when it's for a nominal stimulus check for people during a new Great Depression. Um, and then he argues, this is a, another standard right-wing argument now, we should open up the economy. And my response to him is there's still a pandemic, Rand. It's not like if you fully open up the economy everywhere that all of a sudden the economy is going to bounce back and be roaring and be in great shape. No, until you get the virus under control, of course the the economy is going to lag because not as many people are going to participate in various aspects of the economy until the virus is gone. So that's not a solution. He brings it up as if it's like, pfft, Why don't we just open everything up, and then everything will be great? Okay, but then what are you going to do about the virus? Like, that needs to be under control for the economy to really bounce back. Um, He also says, quote, most most working Americans don't need a check right now. Really? Really? I don't know, man. I'd check in with them. Because guess what? There are plenty of people who still have jobs, but they got their hours cut back. Or they got their pay cut. Or they're working a gig economy job, and... Business has plummeted. Plenty of people with jobs who are really, really, really struggling right now. In fact, most of the people I know who I've talked to about this say, yeah, I got a, I got a pay cut. So, no, most Americans who are working, I would argue, probably do need a check. By the way, who doesn't, right? Like, maybe the top 5% of, of the country is like, okay, I'm fine. But 95% are like, Jesus Christ, I need all the help I can get. I mean, we've seen the numbers. The numbers are absolutely devastating, and they're scary. 60% of small businesses that closed are permanently closed. 28 million people on the brink of foreclosure. 30% of the population couldn't pay rent, and that was as of four, three, four, five months ago, something like that. We're in trouble, man. We're absolutely in trouble. But he says most working Americans don't need a check. And I like his final point. Obama's a conservative when it comes to stimulus hey, you finally got it. (laughs) We've been saying that for a long time. Not just when it comes to stimulus, when it comes to this whole ideology. I've called Barack Obama the most successful Republican president of all time in U.S. history. You could say Lincoln actually was a little bit better, but one of the most successful Republican presidents of all time. Why do I say that? Just look at his ideology. Look at what he pushed for. Look at what he signed into law. This isn't rocket science, ladies and gentlemen. Barack Obama signed, what was it, like over a dozen tax cuts So if you're a Republican, you should like this. He made like 90% of the Bush tax cuts permanent. And that was for people, you know, who are middle class and below. That's what Barack Obama did. Barack Obama signed Romneycare. Obamacare is Romneycare. And Romneycare is from the Heritage Foundation. And Newt Gingrich used to support it. And Chuck Grassley used to support it. It was a Republican health care bill. Signed a Republican health care bill. Repeatedly signed tax cuts into law. You know, this is a guy who was relatively hawkish, something that many Republicans like Rand Paul wouldn't, to be fair. He's more libertarian, and they tend to be more Um, anti-interventionist. There were a few years where he reduced the deficit massively, even during a recession. These guys supposedly love reducing the deficit. They say they do. So I could go point for point, policy for policy, and show you how, in many ways, Barack Obama was a, a very successful moderate Republican president. So he finally gets it. He said, Obama is a conservative when it comes to stimulus. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's fair to say. Um, but it's, it's interesting, too, because at first, if you watch this entire interview, you only saw a little piece of it there. You saw some from the beginning and some from the end. But if you watch the entire interview, he starts out acting like he's against the, the wasteful pork spending and acts like that's the problem with this relief bill. And then by the end, he's asked flat out if he supports any direct payments to people. He's basically like, no, I don't support that either. So notice the Weasley move he did there. He knows that the direct checks are very popular. 88% was the last poll I saw. 88% of the American people want more direct checks. He knows that that part is really popular. So he positions himself as just against the pork spending. And then by the end, when he's asked flat out, he's like, yeah, I don't really support those either. Free, uh, you know, free money for everybody. That's a terrible idea. Something, something socialism. So it's very Weasley. Because there was also another part of the interview where he tried to align himself with Trump. But Trump was for the $2,000 checks, and you're against those too. So he's trying to lead with the thing that's more palatable. But then ultimately he ends up saying what he's really for, which is I do not he doesn't want any sort of stimulus bill at all, period. That's who Rand Paul is. That's what, you know... Libertarian-leaning economics will get you. It's honestly the last thing you want to do when you hit an economic downturn. The last thing you want is austerity. You do not want austerity. That's only going to exacerbate the problem. And that's exactly what Rand Paul is in favor of, because you know his devotion to what he views as the free market is absolute. It's like a, a religious belief. It's like a fundamentalist belief. He's a, he's a free market fundamentalist in many ways. So. Not the guy you want in charge when there's an economic downturn. That's for damn sure. Okay. So Fox News mocked the idea of Joe Biden as a centrist. Um, The reason this clip is funny is because they're pretty adamant on that point that he's not a centrist, and what a ridiculous thing to say, but then later on they accidentally casually admit he indeed is exactly that. (laughs) A centrist in the D.C. swamp, I should say. Um, So this clip is edited, by the way, but it's edited to show you the key parts. The key parts being mocking the idea that he's a centrist and then eventually casually, you know, admitting it mid-rant, mid-some-other-rant. Watch this.
0: In an interview with the New York Times, Biden said,
1: "Quote his decades-long brand of centrist deal making would empower him to move beyond the bitter partisanship of the past four years and advance his agenda. And as president, Mr. Biden will need to build bridges to Democrats as well as to Republicans."
6: I'm here to react. Is Fox News contributor, media opinion columnist for The Hill, Joe Concha? Joe, welcome um is it true is he is he the centrist guy that the new york times is so glowingly um telling us is going to bring this country together and make the deals happen
3: well rachel fortunately we have a prequel to look at and that was the eight years of obama biden you tell me how many deals were made during that time was obamacare a deal or was that pushed through on christmas eve along party lines Criminal justice reform, uh, one of the President's, President Trump's signature achievements, could have been done under uh, Biden, Obama administration, never got done, so I, I look back at the record in terms of Obama, Biden, I don't see much of that. Plus the New York Times, boy, they're exactly the folks that should be talking about bipartisanship. The last time they endorsed a Republican for president was when Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel was number one. That was 1956, something like 30 years before we were born, of course. So that race, those two races in Georgia that's the whole ballgame, guys. And if Joe Biden, I think, secretly, deep down in places he doesn't want to talk about in parties, he probably wants a Republican Senate because he would have to deal then, therefore, with a party, uh, a wing that he doesn't even recognize anymore in terms of all the things I just listed.
1: You just admitted that Joe Biden probably secretly wants a Republican Senate because if there's a Republican Senate, he could work with them instead of people to his left who he views as crazy. How did you try to refute the idea that he's a centrist dealmaker, and then you immediately say, like, that guy's a centrist dealmaker. He probably prefers Republicans to the so-called far left. I just, like, I will say, and I notice this, I've been noticing this more recently than I ever have before. There's no rhyme or reason why so many people say certain things, believe certain things. There are plenty of people who are just totally ideologically unmoored and also unmoored from empirical reality. Like try having a conversation with somebody with strong political opinions who, does, who who's very partisan but can't really back it up. Do it at your next family event. Talk to your most opinionated relative and just keep asking basic questions. And eventually you're gonna be like, oh my God, there's literally nothing at the core of what this person is saying. They're all like impulse and id and they just you know, go with whatever the flow is and whatever the tribal talking point of the day is. And it's actually really sad and really depressing when you see it. And I just feel like this is such a good example of that same mindset because the whole point of Fox News, Democrats bad, right? That's the whole idea. Democrats really bad. And so they go out there and their Democrat bad talking point of the day is, ha ha, people are saying Biden is a centrist. No, he's not, that's stupid. And then in the rant where you're discussing that, which is the whole point of the segment, you admit You know, this guy probably wants a Republican Senate because he doesn't want to deal with the far left of his own party. What would you label that, son? You would call that a centrist, a centrist in the Washington, D.C. political spectrum. He's as corporate as they get, by the way. And, And furthermore, forget the dynamics of, like, who to negotiate with and who he enjoys and who he doesn't enjoy. Just look at his record. His record makes crystal clear that he's exactly what the New York Times describes him as. The only difference is the New York Times describes that in glowing terms, and I think that's abysmal and stupid and dumb. So, you know, he supported the Iraq War. He supported the Patriot Act. He supported NAFTA. Um, they bring up Obamacare to say, see, he's not a bipartisan dealmaker. Obamacare was a Republican piece of legislation. The fact that Republicans backed off of it just shows how partisan and tribal they are. It says nothing about Biden or Barack Obama. They proposed an original Republican piece of legislation and got it passed. You could say that's bipartisan, even though it got zero Republican votes, because the frickin' bill is a Republican bill. It's unbelievable. So these are the examples. His record, Iraq War, Patriot Act, NAFTA, Obamacare, the bankruptcy bill. Taking out Obamacare, all of those really are bipartisan, and not in a good way. They were bipartisan in a terrible way. They were terrible pieces of legislation. He repeatedly tried to cut Social Security and Medicare. He's a big advocate of the grand bargain, which I'm sure he's going to try to do with McConnell under his presidency. So, of course, that's what he is. Of course, he's a he's a bipartisan dealmaker and he's a he's a basically a moderate Republican. That's who Joe Biden is. But they can't help themselves. Democrat bad. And Joe Biden is a Democrat in name. So they're trying to do. See, no, he's extreme, too. Before they admit, uh, yeah, he doesn't even want to work with the left flank of his own party. He'd rather work with Republicans. And by the way, like I said. It's not good that he's a bipartisan dealmaker because the bipartisan deals he cuts are terrible. They're the things I just named, all of them negative. All of them negative. Corporate Democrats and corporate Republicans love to agree on more war and more deregulation. That's what they like to agree on. The only time you get good bipartisanship is when it's the populist left and the populist right or the populist left and the libertarian right on, like, foreign policy and criminal justice reform. You know? Like, that's when you get good deals, when it's like... Josh Hawley and Bernie Sanders fighting for stimulus checks. That was positive. Bernie Sanders and Mike Lee fighting to end the genocide in Yemen and our support of the genocide in Yemen, our support of Saudi Arabia and arming them. That's good bipartisanship. Bad bipartisanship is basically everything Joe Biden's ever done in his career. Corporate Democrats and corporate Republicans getting together and agreeing to screw you. That's what it is. But, you know, Fox News somehow hitting a new low with their stupidity, refuting their own point in their own point. That's real special. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, I got a lot more for you. Don't go anywhere, y'all.
4: y'all
1: we are still here we are still here and uh so we just did the joe biden segment where fox news accidentally admitted he's a centrist and now believe it or not we're about to give cnn some credit for what i think is uh actually very very good journalism so here we go the ending is the only issue here, which which we'll get to. We'll talk about it. CNN did some decent journalism here. They spoke to a victim of the infamous Blackwater attack in Nisour Square that left innocent women and children killed. Um, most of this segment is very informative. Credit where credit is due. You will see at the end, though, the, the issue generally with mainstream media. Watch.
5: One of the most controversial pardons from President Trump went to four former Blackwater security contractors who were serving time for killing 17 Iraqi civilians in 2007. The pardons have stoked outrage in Iraq and beyond, and they've reopened emotional wounds. It's as Arwa Damon reported from Baghdad in the aftermath of that massacre, and I know you've stayed in touch uh, with so many who were affected, and Arwa joins us now. Arwa, good morning. Good morning, Erica. I mean, people who were talking to survivors, they are just absolutely shocked, stunned by this decision by President Trump. The horror-filled memories of that day in September 2007 still haunt those who survived, whose physical scars may have healed, but who grapple with the psychological trauma nearly every day. I remember seeing a woman and her son. Their car was in front. It was on fire. She was crying out until she burnt to death with her son. Hassan Jabir Salman said. There was so much gunfire. It wasn't normal. Bodies just fell in the street. I wasn't wounded yet. I moved my car to get away, and I was shot multiple times. It was a sunny day in Baghdad, one where the population could almost pretend their country wasn't being ravaged by violence. But those illusions shattered quickly in Iraq. In an instant, a busy Baghdad roundabout, El Mursur Square, turned into a street of blood. Ali Abdel Razak was the youngest victim, just nine years old. Shot in the head in the backseat of his car as his father helplessly watched him die. My son was the heart of our family, his father Muhammad told us years ago. The shooting rampage was carried out by what was then Blackwater, a private security company notorious for its brutish and trigger-happy behavior. Blackwater claimed its personnel were under attack though numerous eyewitness accounts said that was not true. From his hospital bed at the time, Salman had described how Blackwater operatives opened fire indiscriminately at civilians. No one fired at Blackwater. They were not attacked by gunmen. They were not targeted, he said. Salman traveled to the U.S. to testify, almost seven years after the massacre. In the end, one of the Blackwater operatives was sentenced to life in prison. Three others sentenced from 12 to 15 years. Salman, a lawyer himself, felt as if there was a semblance of justice. It renewed his faith in American ideals. Not anymore. President Trump, the first recent U.S. president to pardon convicted killers, let the murderers, the men who destroyed his life, walk free. I say to him, your decision, you are going to have to face God on this, Salman says. You did not fulfill justice. You pardoned the criminals and the killers. The blood of the dead and wounded is on your hands. And Erica, Salman also warned about the dangerous precedent that this is setting, that if a country like America is willing to let Killers, murderers, walk free, what kind of standard does that set for the rest of the world? There's also the question of the message that it sends uh, to the rest of the world and specifically to the region, Arwa. That's right. I mean, America quite often, when it does end up interfering or getting involved in the region, comes at it from this perspective of being a democratic nation with high ideals and morals. And so for that kind of messaging to all of a sudden be turned into actually America, justice, not not so much, not necessarily. It can all be turned on its head. It really sends a couple of messages. The first being that, you know what, maybe America isn't exactly on the moral high ground that it claims to be. And the other is, life is cheap. Iraqi life is cheap. Arab life is cheap. And this is something that a lot of Iraqis have actually felt very deeply and very profoundly, only to have it validated once more.
1: You know, that last part was the part that I couldn't get over. Uh, That was very informative. I'm happy that they spoke to these victims. Um, But at the end, the commentary... It just shows you how, I think, generally naive a lot of these people are who work in these mainstream media outlets. And that's one of the reasons why they're hired, because they're not going to rock the boat. Wolf Blitzer generally doesn't ask interesting questions, with a few notable exceptions. But, you know, he's usually willing to reflect the worldview of the establishment, and that's what lands you in these positions. So I like how they talk about how, well, in America, we're supposed to be a democratic nation with high ideals and morals. And to see Trump pardon these people, oh, it's a shock to the system. Um, They say for that kind of messaging to now be turned into America, justice? No, not really. Maybe America isn't on the moral high ground it claims to be. You don't say. Uh, And she says, life is cheap, Iraqi and Arab life is cheap. That's the message that this sends. That's right. But, yeah, the point is, this happened in 2007, by the way. That's when this happened. And it happened under George W. Bush. And it's not like the Iraq War before the Nisor Square Massacre from Blackwater mercenaries. It's not like the Iraq War before that was just and moral and righteous and high-minded and virtuous. In fact, quite the opposite. We had already learned that it was an illegal war and an offensive war against a country that didn't attack us based on lies based on lies. Saddam Hussein did not work with Osama bin Laden. Saddam Hussein also did not have weapons of mass destruction, and he certainly wasn't planning some sort of imminent attack against the United States of America. So ask yourself, what were we really doing? What are we really doing? And there are no good answers to that. There are no answers that make you think we're in the right. I'll say that. There's no answers where you walk away going, oh, that makes sense. You could say oil in the case of Iraq. You could say trillions of dollars of mineral wealth in the case of Afghanistan, you could say geopolitical power. There's a lot of answers, and they're all ugly. Military industrial complex profits, is that the main driving force? Maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but certainly it's one of the windfalls of it. So point is, point is, this is a great piece of journalism, but it is naive to act like, well, this is the thing that really unmasks us. No. No. We've been unmasked for quite a while. If you really objectively take a look at what we did in Vietnam, that should have been an unmasking to you. And Vietnam way predates the war on terror. So perhaps when you're the world's sole superpower and you're an empire, you're not acting based on high morals and ideals and virtuousness. You're not the policeman of the world. Maybe you're the world's thug and maybe you just think rules don't apply to us, laws don't apply to us, and that's exactly what Trump said here. Trump just crystallizes it. Trump just takes the mask off of the empire and stops the tap-dancing bullshit where previous presidents pretend we're so virtuous and so moral, and that's why we do what we do. Or we're not at all virtuous, we're not at all moral, and we got this clown buffoon running us who's proudly pro-imperialist, and he says stuff like, we should have just taken the oil. We should have just taken the oil. I don't know why we didn't take the oil. I think that we should basically just take the oil. So there you have it. Again, good journalism from CNN. I'm happy they spoke to the victims. I'm happy they covered this in the way they did. But at the end, you see how kind of naive they are. And, um, you know, I think most adults who've looked at this stuff seriously, even a little bit, already knew that it was nonsense, all the fake morals and ideals that we pretend to protect by going around the world. So... It's just interesting to see them have that light bulb moment at this late, late, late date, all because Trump pardoned these war criminals. Um, it's like, really? The Bush administration torture didn't give you that light bulb moment? should have had that light bulb moment in the early 2000s with torture, illegal torture, against innocent people nonetheless. Guantanamo Bay, that didn't give you that light bulb moment? No, now you get that light bulb moment. Okay. Better late than never, I guess. Okay. Next. Jamal Bowman and Cori Bush. Incoming Congress people, Jamal Bowman and Cori Bush, were asked if they're going to support Nancy Pelosi for Speaker of the House. This is interesting. Look at what they had to say.
5: And real quick, before I let you both go, uh, something looking ahead at that you're both going to have to vote on, which is... Uh, The Speaker of the House, Congresswoman-Elect Bush, will you vote for Nancy Pelosi as Speaker? (laughs) What I'm going to do is make sure that the voices of the people of St. Louis are heard and that we have what we need, and so uh, you'll find out then. That's not a – yeah, I'm working with my community. I'm working with my community. Okay. And Congressman-Elect Bowman, will you vote for Nancy Pelosi as Speaker?
3: So you will find out when my vote is tally uh, and again organizing with our community to figure out what's best.
1: My favorite part is the CNN host Anna Bash saying, "That's not a yes. It's not a yes." Bow, Bend your knee. I like these answers. I do. Now, I do think people are reading too much into it, though. Like, I, I feel like people are reading into this that they're going to do hashtag force the vote. Um, that's not my takeaway. My takeaway is there's a few things it could be. But number one, that there are backroom negotiations going on, which I'm sure there are. But, you know, my contention has always been those don't work nearly as well as when you use the bully pulpit. And as we already saw it. AOC was snubbed for a committee seat that she thought she was a lock to get. So, you know, those backroom negotiations didn't work out too well in that scenario, and I did it. Um, so thing number one this tells me is maybe there are backroom negotiations happening, and if there are backroom negotiations happening, you do want the left flank to not just commit to this up front. So Pelosi knows, like, hey, you got to do stuff for us. Um, it's also possible that, you know, Cori Bush and Jamal Bowman— just like all the Justice Democrats, they've probably been hearing all the public pressure, guys. They've probably been hearing everybody really being aggressive about the fact that we need material improvement. We need Medicare for all. We need to fight. And if they've been on social media, they've seen that public pressure, and this would be a logical, reasonable, rational response to dealing with that public pressure. The public pressure is, hey, leverage your vote, Then they say something like this it's a hint that yeah we're going to leverage our vote for something again is it necessarily going to be a a floor vote on medicare for all no but for something and then the other possibility is they say this because they want a better option to emerge now i think it is too late for that to be fair but yeah i think that you know all the justice democrats have kind of admitted to one extent or another we need a better, further-left option to emerge, whether that's Pramila Jayapal or Barbara Lee. You know, these things are are up in the air and and questionable, and you could debate it, but, yeah, I think everybody's sort of holding out hope that there is somebody better that comes along, because Nancy Pelosi is certainly unacceptable, and she has not been a successful leader, and this whole master negotiator myth that has, you know, come out around her is infuriating and nauseating. Um, So I will add to this conversation as well that, interestingly, Ilhan Omar tweeted at Nancy Pelosi, responding to a video that was tweeted of Nancy Pelosi arguing for a vote on Medicare for All in 1994. Ilhan Omar tweeted at Nancy Pelosi, hey, we should have a vote on this now. Now, again, I think people are maybe reading too much into that, that Ilhan Omar is going to officially support hashtag force the vote. I don't know if that's true, because that would require actually withholding her vote to force that vote on Medicare for All. And I don't know if they have the numbers. I don't know if they're organized. They seem to be against the idea of hashtag force the vote um but at least it's some sort of you know token level of support of like no i agree we shall vote on medicare for all for sure and to publicly say something like that does show a little bit of bravery and courage um so credit to ilhan on that credit to jamal bowman and cory bush here as well uh i wouldn't get too ahead of ourselves though because i think there's a decent chance they will end up voting for pelosi if they see no better option um but I mean, keep up the pressure, keep up the pressure, because, you know, it's not unreasonable to demand more from our politicians, especially when it comes to health care in the middle of a pandemic. Don't let anybody tell you you're crazy for wanting to try to force universal coverage in the middle of a pandemic. That's only the most reasonable thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Okay. Okay. Now we're going to go to Representative Kinsinger, Republican Representative Kinsinger. I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, but I don't really care. Uh, he went off on the lies and conspiracies around the 2020 election in an interview on CNN. This was unexpected, and it was a pleasant surprise.
5: i want to look ahead to January 6th, uh, when the Electoral College results will be before a joint session of Congress. President Trump uh, and Vice President Pence met with uh, some Republicans uh, at the White House this week, a number of Senate Republicans, some House, Republicans haven't ruled out uh, contesting at various points the election results. What do you expect to happen?
4: I expect there will be a little chaos. This is a scam, though. I mean, you know, to explain to people that somehow Congress can overthrow the certified results of every state, that we can change an election outcome when there was not a single court case that had any legs, I mean, even if you believe that somehow the courts were, you know, inept in this whole process, if somehow you believe that this whole election was stolen, the reality is there is no impetus to overthrow an election, even if you want to, and there's no ability to overthrow an election, even if you want to. And so all that's being done is certain members of Congress, the president, et cetera, and, and, you know, like, quote-unquote, thought leaders on Twitter – are getting retweets, they're getting followers, they're raising money on this scam. It is a scam. It is going to disappoint the people that believe this election was stolen, that think this is an opportunity to change it. But instead of being disappointed in the people that led them on this cr*pting scam, they're going to somehow, you know, try to convince these people that it was, I don't know, what's the new word, the rhinos in Congress or something like that and not the Constitution that prevents this from happening in the first place. We talk about the Constitution, we have to follow it, and I'm sorry if that doesn't mean that the outcome was what you wanted.
1: That's amazing. So this is a Republican representative basically waging war, declaring war on the entire right-wing media ecosystem, which is ballsy, which is ballsy, because usually the dynamic we're used to seeing is Republicans embrace their right-wing media ecosystem, and Democrats run away from their left-wing media ecosystem. Um, but this is a clear shot across the bow, and he says, "Listen, people who are raising money off this—it's a scam. It's a scam. It's not going anywhere. Um, people are getting their hopes up. Nothing's going to happen as a result of this. All this, you know, fraud, fraudulent election, rigged election. Wait until you see what really happens. There's all these." You know, weird forums where people are talking about this saying Sidney Powell is really going to release the Kraken and they're going to be there's going to be martial law. They're going to arrest Biden and all the all the Democrats. And then Trump's going to get his next four years. And I'm, I'm going to love to see the, the look on the LibCucks faces when this happens. Are you guys insane? Have you totally lost your mind and any semblance of touch with reality? Because that that is not happening. It's simply not happening. And when you have Republican representatives who usually are in lockstep with their base and they're like, hey, pump your brakes, dog,
4: you know
1: this is something different and this is something new. Now, by the way, Trump is saying, I think Trump is going to probably announce that he's running in 2024 soon. He says there's a, a big event happening in January. Who knows what that maniac is doing? But we know he cannot let this go. This sting of rejection, he cannot accept. He's pushing forward regardless, even though his approval rating is even dropping more and more now because he's being so stubborn and so ridiculous in the face of loss. As Geraldo Rivera said, he's like an entitled frat boy. Um, but this is interesting to see. And you are going to have a war within the Republican ranks. I'm going I'm to discuss more of that in a little bit. But he very clearly, this Republican representative called it a scam, quote, a scam. People are raising money off this scam. And that's exactly what it is. Even Trump and his inner circle, they were sending out these mass emails talking about, oh, donate to the fund to fight to overturn this fraudulent election. And when you read the fine print, most of that money was going to pay off their campaign debt. You had to give, like, thousands in order for any amount of money to go towards the actual lawsuits, of which, by the way, they lost, like, 50 of them. And they only won, like, one. So... It is a scam. It is a scam. They're fundraising and just paying off the campaign debts as they're pretending like the fundraising still gives them a chance of winning the election. Trump is still pretending like there's a chance of him winning, even though the Electoral College already certified the results. I mean, it's really out of this world, but now you have even Republican representatives are like, enough, enough, enough. This isn't going anywhere. People are getting their hopes up. This is ridiculous. People raising money off this. They're scam artists. He's basically calling out the entire right-wing media ecosystem, Newsmax, One America News Network, like all those people all the new media far right-wing people. This is a Republican representative saying, stop being idiots. Stop being idiots. Because this is like, this is like Russiagate for Republicans. But the difference is, Russiagate really hit a fever pitch when Trump was already president, and nobody was denying that Trump is president. It was just like, oh, some people said he got there because Vladimir Putin put him there. It's ridiculous, but that was the narrative. But Trump was already in office. This is like Russiagate for Republicans, except it's even dumber because they really believe that, like, Somehow Trump is going to remain president over the next four years, even though we're about to have Biden's inauguration shortly. I mean, it's just it really is disconnected from reality. And the right wing media ecosystem has now lost Republican politicians. And boy, oh, boy, does that say something. Okay, next. I want to I wanna weigh in more to this conversation. So we might be lucky enough to see a very entertaining show shortly. Raw Story says the following, with CNN reporting that a few GOP lawmakers in both chambers are still making plans to dispute the Electoral College votes when they convene on January 6th, a senior Republican in the Senate, said it will be a waste of time and not to bother. According to the report, some House members are making plans to disrupt the proceedings, which in most years is just a formality, with Donald Trump egging them on by insisting the election was stolen from him. According to the report. According to the CNN report, House members need a senator to voice their objections that would force the Senate GOP conference to take a politically toxic vote on whether they're siding with Trump or not. The hope currently lies with Inc. Senator Tommy tu- Tuberville, a Republican of Alabama who has admitted he is open to the idea of lending the president a helping hand. Oh, this is delicious. Yummy, yummy in my tummy, y'all.
0: This would be
1: the spark for an outright Republican civil war, and I would love to see it. I'm rooting for Tommy Tuberville to do what he's flirting with doing, because what happens? So, by the way, this is mostly a formality. You know, Congress and the Senate certifying the Electoral College results—it's a a formality. It's not real. Like Biden is going to be president, the Electoral College already certified it. But this is just, you know, a tradition that happens. So whether or not they really do it is irrelevant. Biden's president; he's going to become president. But Republicans are now pretending like this is substantive. The Republicans and the media and the far right are now pretending like, well, this this is our last stand. This is our last hope to get Trump to stay in office. And so the idea is you force the Republicans on the record. If one senator objects, you force the Republicans on record to say who sides with Trump and who doesn't. And, um,
2: oh, man. Oh, my
1: God. You would have plenty of Republican senators who say, no, he lost the election. Mitt Romney comes to mind. But there's going to be a lot with Mitt Romney. There's plenty of Republican senators who have kind of hinted, like, this is over and let's stop being silly. So, like, Mitt Romney would be like, no, it's over he lost. And you'd have, I don't know, maybe half of the Republicans are like, what are we doing? He lost. It's over. But then you would have the craziest half who are like, yeah, but no, maybe it's not over. I side with President Trump. And then it is just absolute chaos and absolute mayhem. And you have the right-wing media ecosystem totally turns on half the Republican senators. You have um, the other half who stand with Trump basically, you know, declaring their support for the idea of a coup. It's not going to happen, but it's the, it's the idea that I would love to overturn the election where Biden won by 7 million votes and Biden got 306 electoral votes. It's basically declaring, yeah, forget democracy. I'm going to side with the authoritarian strongmen. So I actually want them to do this, though, because it'll be a mess. It'll be chaos, and it's all in the Republican ranks and you could sit back and have some popcorn and watch watch it unfold. Watch them eat their own alive. You ain't seen nothing yet with the, you know, the corporate democrats versus the left, that civil war going on in the Democratic Party. You know, the Bernie wing, the Justice Democrat wing versus the centrist corporatists. You ain't seen nothing yet. Cuz that the left and the I should say the Democrats will look totally unified next to what could happen if Tommy Tuberville says I object to the Electoral College results, and then Republicans are forced to take a vote. And the reason why, I bet you it's Mitch McConnell who's saying, this is going to die, this attempt to overturn the election is going to die. I bet you it's Mitch McConnell warning everybody, because I'll tell you something, if Mitch McConnell can't keep a lid on all this, that absolutely hurts the Republicans' electoral chances moving forward, because you would have an outright civil war, the likes of which we've never seen within within the Republican Party. And what Mitch McConnell doesn't want is he doesn't want to have this happen and then you have the vote and get her on the record and then basically the half of the party that doesn't side with trump they're screwed electorally electorally because that's trump still has the heart of the base but then the other half of the party basically says i don't care about democracy and that's a bad thing in principle it's a bad thing for the country So Mitch McConnell doesn't want it to get to that point, so he's trying to keep a lid on all this. I bet you Republican leadership is trying to keep a lid on all this, because they know it's over, they know it's done, and they just want to avoid the total breakdown and disintegration and civil war within the Republican Party. So I don't. I'm the opposite. I think that Tommy Tuberville should do this. I want to see this happen. I want to see this unfold. I want to see Trump pretend like now there's some sort of chance, because half the Republican senators are like, yeah, overturn democracy. And Trump's acting like, maybe I'm going to be able to stay in. Maybe I'm going to be able to stay in. No, you, you won't, you child. This could be a very entertaining show. I'm for it. If you're on the left, you should probably be for it, too. All right, Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz was caught red handed doing a, a very corrupt deal. Take a look. According to a report from the Wall Street Journal, Senator Ted Cruz lent a helping hand to two Texas fracking billionaires asking for, by asking for changes to rules that would allow them to acquire a $35 million COVID-19 relief loan aimed at helping struggling businesses stay afloat. The report notes that Texas billionaires Dan and Farris Wilkes, they sound like billionaires, were on a buying spree as the coronavirus pandemic spread across the country, buying up bankrupt competitors and investing in others, only to find... They were prohibited from taking advantage of the government-backed loan program uh, as one of their many companies struggled. According to the journal, they then reached out to Cruz for help. Now, they then go on to say the following, quote, soon after the U.S. government changed the rules of its lending program in April, um, excuse me, soon after the U.S. government changed the rules of its lending program in April, a Wilkes family company, Profrac Holdings, LLC." applied for and received a $35 million loan, federal records show. The report notes before adding, quote, the Wilkes brothers are longtime financial backers of Mr. Cruz. The brothers donated $15 million to a super PAC called Keeping the Promise that championed Mr. Cruz's 2016 presidential campaign, making them the largest financial backers of his political career. So, Here's what happened. The rules of the loan program were such that includes people who are well-off like these Texas fracking billionaires who don't need help. The rules were such that they couldn't get help because they don't need help because they're phenomenally wealthy. And if one of their zillion companies is struggling, okay, better go into that bank account and you know grab some capital and, and shore up your own business, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, some would say. Um, So they didn't need help. That's why they were excluded from the program. But they reached out to Cruz because they know they own Cruz. And Cruz was like, yeah, I'm on it. And so he pulled some strings behind the scenes and he got the provision changed. And now Texas oil billionaires got taxpayer money. So that's corruption. That's corruption is what that is. And that's also corporate socialism. Ted Cruz over here likes to pretend, me, bro, I'm against government spending because I'm a small government conservative. Well, when it comes to forking over taxpayer money to Texas billionaires who've donated to Ted Cruz's campaign, all of a sudden he's not so principled. All of a sudden he doesn't believe in small government. All of a sudden he's willing to throw taxpayer money around and make it rain. But, you know, listen, this is... This is the way it works, man. This is the way Washington works, and it's totally unacceptable. And you also have Ted Cruz, who pretends to be a populist, pretends to be further working class now. He saw that this is a shtick that worked with Trump, so he's now trying to do the same thing. Republicans are now the party of workers. Really? What was this move you just pulled? On behalf of your billionaire donors getting a provision change to give them $35 million in taxpayer money. Is that populist? Is that pro-working class? Not at all. It's just out-and-out out corruption. It's out-and-out out corruption. So anytime he pretends to be for workers, just remember who this guy is. He's a fraud. He's a fraud. This is a guy, I should note, who's made the argument that we should have unlimited money in politics. Unlimited. Unlimited. Why? Because he says that's freedom of speech. It's freedom of speech for some Texas oil billionaires, Texas fracking billionaires, to give... Tr- to give um, Cruise $15 million to a super, a super PAC for him. He wants them to be able to give $15 million to his campaign as well, not just the super PAC, which is nominally one step removed from him. It's not really removed from him, but that's the way you know the law works. That's a giant loophole. But he wants unlimited money. He wants it so that if they want to give him $200 million, he could take it. And he says, if you're against this, you're against freedom of speech. That's the argument he makes because he's a weasel. He's an absolute weasel. One of the most corrupt senators in the country, one of the most corrupt politicians in the country, as he pretends to be holier than now, pretends to be a deep believer in small government and the free marketplace, he's corrupt, and this flies in the face of that conservative ideology. Remember this. He's a careerist, slimy, weasel climber, and he wants to get in as good as he can with all these donors because he wants to run for president again, and he wants to make sure he has enough money to be competitive principles be damned. You know, he'll he'll bathe in the corruption, bathe in the swamp. This is who Ted Cruz is. And are you going to see this story on, say, Fox News, for example, going after Ted Cruz for this, calling him corrupt, pointing out that this actually is not what's supposed to be a conservative ideal? And just so you know, every time there comes, uh, you know, a question about a bailout for you, Ted Cruz is against it. He's against tax money for working Americans who are struggling, people who fell on hard times. But he's for giving tax money to fracking billionaires. That says a lot about this guy. Joe Biden gave us another epic Joe Biden moment. He said this about working with Senate Republicans. I'll never publicly embarrass them. Why? You should. That's one of the tools that you have with the bully pulpit. Why would you take that off the table? So I want to give you, um, here's what he said on a call with reporters. Quote, my leverage is every senior Republican knows I've never once, ever misled them. I'll never publicly embarrass them, This is what Biden said. I'm going to be able to get stuff done on the environment you all are not going to believe. I couldn't have gotten it done six years ago. You couldn't have gotten it done six years ago, but you're going to get it done now? What makes you think that you're going to be able to do that? What makes you think that? And he said previously, he thinks when Trump's out, the fever will break and Republicans will realize, I've been so unreasonable, I can't wait to work with Democrats now. He really believes this. He really believes this. As Ryan Grimm said, he's been in office since like 1712, and he's still a mark. He is. He absolutely is. Um, Asked this week if he's up to the fight with Republicans and members of his own party, Biden said this, quote, I respectfully suggest that I beat the hell out of everyone else talking about the Democratic primary. I think I know what I'm doing, and I've been pretty damn good at being able to deal with the punchers. I know how to block a straight left and do a right hook. I understand it. So note the difference there. Note the difference. When talking about Republicans, he says, every senior Republican knows I never once ever misled them, I'll never publicly embarrass them. That's when he's talking about Republicans. When he's talking about the Democratic primary and working with the left, quote, I respectfully suggest I beat the hell out of every out of everyone else in the primary. So the left, I beat the hell out of everybody else. So know your role and fall in line. The right, I'll never publicly embarrass you. Look at the mindset. Look at the mindset. Dismissive of the left. Looking down on the left. I beat the hell out of the people who represent you like Bernie. Okay, so shh. By the way, you needed help to do that, didn't you? You needed Barack Obama to make some phone calls. You needed Amy Klobuchar to drop out. You needed Pete Buttigieg to drop out at the last minute. They endorsed you, and you needed Elizabeth Warren to stay in to siphon more votes from Bernie. That's what you needed. You needed the perfect storm in order to defeat Bernie Sanders. Now you brag, I beat the hell out of everybody else. So if you're on the left, fall in line. Know your role. I'm your leader. If you're on the right, I'll never publicly embarrass you. This is so indicative of the corporate Democrat mindset. The corporate Democrat mindset is move further right and further right and further right and call yourself a bipartisan genius and a dealmaker. To the point where now he's just a, an old school Republican. He's a moderate Republican. Vote for the Iraq War, the Patriot Act, the bankruptcy bill, the crime bill, NAFTA, the list goes on and on. He's a Republican. But he thinks like somehow, you know, the left needs to listen to me and fall in line, whereas the right, I'll never publicly embarrass you, I'm on your side. We know, Joe, we know, that's the problem. And you still have people on the left who don't want to play hardball, who don't want to force their hand, who don't want to get aggressive, who don't want to use the bully pulpit, who don't want to leverage their social media followings, and organize. It's a shame, it absolutely is a shame, because he ain't going to do anything of what we want unless we force him to do it He'll be over there cutting deals with Mitch McConnell about cutting Social Security and Medicare and patting himself on the back like he's some sort of hero for taking money away from grandma. This is infuriating. This is absolutely infuriating. All right, now. Let's go to Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi argued for a floor vote on single-payer Medicare for all in
6: 1994. For reasons of security, the reasons of savings, Savings that spring also from the simplicity of the program, savings which which spring from early intervention, people seeking and receiving health care earlier in the game so that they don't have more costly health care and hospital stays. Uh, everything points to Mr. McDermott's bill. It is interesting to see how, under scrutiny, when people really take the look at these bills, how. Brilliantly, uh, the single payer plan uh, stands out. And I think it's a tribute to Mr. McDermott's endurance that he has kept this issue alive, others did not think it was so, shall so we say, inevitable. In any event, uh, I hope that uh, the committee, I joined my colleagues in requesting from the committee the opportunity for this bill to be considered as a substitute under the rule. It has support in my community, uh, it has support across the country, it has support in this Congress, I hope it does on this committee as well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
1: That's Nancy Pelosi singing the praises of single-payer Medicare for all. In 1994 and asking for a floor vote on single-payer Medicare for all she wants it to come out of committee and that's something. here's the thing that I think most people probably don't understand this but when people show up to Washington get elected and they're officially politicians I really do think they mean well. And I don't just mean Democrats. I mean Republicans, too. Like, Republicans, you know, there are plenty of people out there who really believe that, you know, abortion is murder and we have to stop it. There's plenty of people on the right who believe that, I don't know, you fill in the blank, tax cuts are always wonderful in every circumstance. And so they get there and they really care about these things. They have an ideology. They have a philosophy. Now, in the case of the Democrats, yes, most of of the Democrats get involved and they want to help their communities. They want a more effective, efficient government that provides basic needs for people. Um, I think that when Nancy Pelosi first got to Washington, D.C., she's no different. I think she really believed in single payer Medicare for all. I do. I do. But I think what happens is fascinating from a sociological perspective because when you're in that environment for so long and you're told over and over and over that's pie in the sky that's unrealistic, that'll never happen. You're so naive, you don't even know how these things work. Eventually, it wears you down. And then eventually, you partake in the system to keep your own power and keep your own seat, namely campaign finance. You take money in order to get reelected, and a lot of people don't question where that money comes from, but when you look at where it comes from, Wall Street, it's big pharma, it's a military industrial complex, it's the for-profit health insurance companies, and so eventually your good intentions are worn down, and you're convinced that you're like a, this naive, you know, idealist who's just stupid and doesn't get how things work, so your idealism becomes pessimism, because Hillary Clinton was once for single payer too, and then after your idealism becomes pessimism, you think, well, Still, I would rather be in this position, and I would rather have power, because at least bad things won't happen under me. And so then you start taking the Wall Street money and the military-industrial complex money and the for-profit health insurance company money, and Nancy Pelosi now is the most lucrative fundraiser among the Democrats, but she's not raising through small-dollar donations. She's raising through moneyed interests. So the good intentions became... Not good intentions, because you got so pessimistic that you thought no real big change is possible. So maybe I'll just do my tweaks around the edges. And then you submit to the way the system works, which is the financing of campaigns is incredibly corrupt. It's basically open corruption. It's a legalized bribery. And so now you're corrupt, and you're not idealistic at all, and you're a status quo manager. But I swear to you guys, I think they would argue up and down, and they would mean it. No, no, no. I'm not corrupt, and I'm just pragmatic now. Okay, yeah, I'm not idealistic, granted, I'm not for single-payer Medicare for all, but I'm, idealist. Uh, I'm pragmatic instead of idealistic. So I'll give you the best change we could possibly get, like Obamacare, for example. The tweaks around the edges, that's what I'll do. That's what I'll do. I'll be a status quo manager, but an effective and a sympathetic status quo manager. So they rationalize it. And unfortunately, this happens with so many people when they get to Washington, D.C. The, the examples like Bernie Sanders are so rare where Bernie ideologically never wavered. He's still in favor of 99% of the correct policies today. Bernie's problem is something different. Bernie's problem is he's clueless on strategy, and he doesn't know how to play hardball at all. That's Bernie's problem, and that's a real problem, but it's not the same thing as selling out. He never sold out. But see, and maybe I underestimated this too originally, but with Justice Democrats, we were looking for people with the right ideology, You've got to be for getting money out of politics. You've got to be for ending the wars. You've got to be for Medicare for all. And we found people with the right policy ideas. But I underestimated, and I think everybody else underestimated, just how much of a leader you have to be in order to really fight these powerful forces that get to work on you from day one, where they make somebody like Nancy Pelosi, who was for single payer, eventually turn against single payer and become incredibly corrupt. Now, thankfully, none of the Justice Democrats are corrupt. They're not taking corporate PAC money. They're not taking financial institution money. They're not. They're taking money through small-dollar donations. So none of them are corrupt. And don't ever make that mistake, because if you malign their intentions, they'll shut off and never listen to you, because you're wrong when you call them corrupt. They're not corrupt. But their problem, again, is strategy. Their problem is they're in favor of the right policies, but that comes to naught if you don't know how to fight, and you don't know how to be a leader, and you don't know how to reject, the nefarious forces that get to work on you from day one. where Like, I think they really believe, like, no, force the vote is not the, not a good idea because we need to still work more to get more of us in here to then eventually get to the point where we could have the vote on Medicare for all. I think that they really think that they're being strategically intelligent by negotiating behind closed doors instead of applying public pressure to Democratic leadership. I think they think this is the right strategy. And it's not. It's just not. So what you see here is a worst-case scenario with Nancy Pelosi in terms of just how much Washington can beat you down. And will it get to the point where some of the Justice Democrats eventually do become fully like Nancy Pelosi? It's possible, but they're certainly not there now. And if you think they're there now, you're wrong, because they don't take any big money, and they're still for all the right policies. They just don't know how to be leaders, and they they don't know how to take control of the situation and control the narrative. And that's a shame, but... This is a cautionary tale, man. Nancy Pelosi was absolutely for single-payer Medicare for all, and then slowly but surely over time, Washington wore her down, and then she completely submitted and became incredibly corrupt and started raising big money, and now we are where we are, where she's just sort of like the embodiment of the corrupt status quo, which is terrible all around. But we need people who are idealistic, correct on the policies, and are willing to be leaders, and are willing to reject all those nefarious forces that get to work on you from day one, because they're powerful. And before you know it, slowly but surely, you're losing that edge you had when you were a real outsider. We need people to maintain their outsider status while being insiders in the sense that they're there in Washington, D.C. making policy. Maintain that outsider worldview, maintain that fighting spirit, that leadership spirit, because it does require a very unique, special person to not become what they despise. And that's exactly what happened with Nancy Pelosi. She became what she despised. She was idealistic. She was for single payer. Slowly but surely, she was convinced that's unrealistic. You're silly if you're for, for that. Okay, fine. I'm for a more mild reform. Now I'm just being pragmatic. Oh, and I want to win, so now I'm going to raise all the big money. Next thing you know, you're doing the bidding of the corporations. You don't even realize how you got there. That's what happened with Nancy. Okay. All right, y'all. Going to do a final story of the day. And actually, final story of the week. Because there is no Wednesday show, because I'm working on the surprise that I've been teasing y'all. Working on the surprise that I've been teasing y'all. You do not want to miss it when it happens. January 1st, 2021. January 1st, 2021. Remember that. Tattoo that on your ass cheek. this is a really interesting fact I wanted to share with you. President Trump is one of the rare presidents whose job approval rating has actually dropped after losing an election. 46% in Gallup's last pre-election poll to 39% now. His drop has been with both Republicans and independents. He was already super low with Democrats, obviously. Um, So there's a few things to say about that. First of all, 39% 39% support is is out of this world. Like I can't. That's actually high. I think that's incredibly high, given everything that's happened, everything that's gone down. But it is a giant drop too, from 46% to 39%. So both things are true. It's way too much for comfort, but it is also a pretty big drop. But what does that tell me, guys? That tells me that yes, the reaction that you're having when you see how unhinged he is and how he cannot accept a loss ever, that reaction does generalize, and a lot of people feel the exact same thing. And, you know, I have anecdotal evidence to back this up in in my personal life. I have a family member who is a big Trump person, and even they, I asked them about it recently during Christmas, and even they were like, I'm sick of it. Like, you need to relax, you need to calm down, not every single thing is about you. You don't have to interject yourself in every single conversation. Um, give it a rest with the whole I won, I won, I won, fraudulent election, rigged election, fraudulent election, rigged election. It's over. Take the L and go sit outside. Go sit in the corner. This is somebody who is a big Trump supporter. And, and they'll, then they'll go on to say, yeah, I think that, you know, they shouldn't have done the mail-in ballots and the Democrats got an unfair advantage from that. And, like, they have their little things that they go to that they argue, you know, they're pro-Trump stuff from, ultimately the conclusion was, I've had enough. Even with the last minute Trump stepping in and saying, no, $2,000 for the relief bill, not 600 even that sort of got under this person's skin. Because they were like, you could have done it earlier. And I was surprised to hear this person say that. I did not think that this person would say that at all. But they were like, you you could have done it earlier and you didn't do it. So what are you doing? You're blowing it up at the last minute. Why? Why would you do that? Why? So anyway, anecdotally, I've seen exactly what this poll is reflecting, which is people are tired, man. And I, you know, I pointed this out previously, but I I backed away from it because Trump really was an aberration in a sense where usually after you leave, you have to go back into the, into the woods in the wilderness. And Trump just didn't do that. But, Initially, his approval sort of held steady. And I was like, Jesus Christ, how's this guy, you know, violating that rule of nature, too? But no, the reality caught up with him. And the fact of the matter is, yeah, just like when Hillary lost and then she was out there immediately after, everybody was like, go away a little bit. Come on, what are you doing? That's how people are now feeling about Trump, which is why there's been a seven-point drop in his approval rating. And honestly, I'm curious to see what happens moving forward. Because if he refuses to get out of the spotlight and tries to keep the attention on him relentlessly, nonstop, every, every second, even as we have a Biden presidency, I'm curious what will happen. Is it possible this keeps plummeting? Sure. Why wouldn't? I could see it going down to 30%, 25%, something like that. Definitely. I mean, he has his hardcore people who will never leave him. But he's basically going to take every borderline person, like my family member, and alienate them. Simply because, like Geraldo Rivera said, he, he's acting like an entitled frat boy. Nobody likes an entitled frat boy, a spoiled brat, who can't hold an L. Like, take your L, dog. Just take it. So anyway, interesting development. And you and I both know he for sure, for sure, is not going to go away quietly. And I think that's pissing more and more people off. And that's totally understandable. Okay. That'll do it for the show, baby. There is no show on Wednesday. I'm working on something that all of you will enjoy. January 1st, 2021. January 1st, 2021. Okay. So no show Wednesday. Love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a good one. Peace.